Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Stocks for beginners. And when I started out, like I probably most investors do, when they start out, they just look at the numbers, they try and find cheap companies and such like that. But as you try to delve and really understand what these businesses are, you really need to look for clues of other qualitative aspects of the business that are really going to drive and motivate people. Because in the end, all these businesses are people, right? It's all driven by people. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. If you board the wrong train, it's no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. That's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, philosopher and martyr. So you may well be wondering why he may have anything to do with investing. So I'm going to let my guest today explain. Hello, Keith Smith. Hi, how you doing? It's great to be here. So, Keith, who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer and what does he mean to you? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, as you had mentioned. He also was a key player in uh, the resistance movement against the Nazis as they took over Germany in the late 30s. Um, He ended up dying as a martyr. The key aspect, I think, of his life that resonates with me was his his convictions and willing to stand up with them, really being able to sort of draw a line of where he should really make a stand. And a lot of times when it comes to life, that's an important thing to do. We all need to make decisions of, okay, our convictions and what we really want to do, where are we going to draw the line? He drew a line and he stuck with it. He stuck with his convictions. He basically taught a lot of other people. He became a leader in terms of people following him in Germany, in terms of what was going on at the time. But then in in addition, just being able to follow those principles to the end, You know, he basically, I think, got under the skin of the people that didn't like him to the point where he ended up dying as a result of that because they ended up executing because they thought he was such a threat. So it really resonates with me just in terms of my faith and the way I think about things. And and it's the same thing, I think, when it comes to investing in terms of basically being able to find some principles, be able to stand with them and know where to draw the line because there's a lot of gray areas and basically you need to decide, okay, well, which areas am I willing to stand on? Because everything can become a gray area and some areas are not white, but you really need to find out where to stand. So that's how it's influenced me personally. And I think it's also helped us in terms of the fun of being able to stay focused. But then there's also, you know, looking at things in other ways. I mean, he was a very open-minded theologian in terms of being able to apply Christian principles in a lot of different ways, probably beyond what people were necessarily used to at the time. He visited a lot of the the churches in the United States at Harlem and basically spoke out against a lot of the racial discrimination that was happening at the time. And so he basically applied his faith in ways that were not common amongst people at the time. And I think that's one way that, you know, as analysts, we need to also be able to do. We need to basically be able to apply our analysis in ways that may not be popular at the time or conventional, but make sense from a principal perspective. So apart from inspiring you in terms of how you look at investing. He inspired you enough to even name your fund after him. 
That's correct. I mean, I think the fund basically sort of imbibes sort of his his approach to things. And I think just the ability to, you know, we talked before in terms about the principal aspect of it, but also um, being able to, you know, persevere through times of when your particular opinion isn't going to be popular. Part of his approach, too, is basically to explain what he was doing and clearly have an explanation of why the hope that was in him was there and actually taking in actions and focusing his life on it. And so I think that's, again, just sort of another inspiration of being able to take a principle and apply it to, you know, whatever works that we're doing in life. I mean, just it's a, you know, it's basically being able to work as though you're working for God no matter what you're doing. So it's a, it's a similar sort of approach there, basically saying, okay, what's the dedication and the focus on that? There's interest, but then there's also sort of everyone has a, you know, the, the God-given sort of potential that's in them and the, and the interests that have been there. And then how do you really sort of invigorate that? He's an important person in history. And, and you know, one of the things we do with our shareholders is we give them, you know, some books and some background about him. There's some really good literature out there written there. There's actually like a graphic novel and a few other things out there to really sort of get across his message. And I think it's a real important one, especially in the days that we are in today, because there is so much gray area and provides sort of a nice example of, okay, here's a contrast that really makes sense from that perspective. Okay. So you're explaining the principles that um, Bonhoeffer espoused, but um, in terms of investing, what are you telling your shareholders and clients about investing and your particular way of approaching investing? Yeah. The particular way that, that we look at is it's primarily a, a value-oriented investment strategy. That's a strategy, that, a bedrock strategy that we always have. The initial sort of focus has been in sort of three areas, areas that we would call compound mispricings, which are situations where both the company and the underlying security are mispriced, and therefore we can get some kind of multiplication effect by really buying both and over time having adjustments in both the security valuation itself and the underlying security. A simple example of that would be like a long-term option undervalued security. And clearly what you get there is you get the leverage of the option plus the security re-rating. So that's a simple example of that. The other two areas that we focus on have been what we call mischaracterized companies. These are situations where a company doesn't quite fit into a specific industry or really the business model is outside the scope of what analysts look for. An example of that that we have in the portfolio is a company called Ashteed. So Ashteed is typically, when you look at the way the analysts look at it, is, is lumped in together with the industrials. But the company's really a rental company and really has some really rental and distribution business, which really has some really interesting characteristics that are more akin to those. And the growth models that they have are a lot closer to that. And therefore, what happens is, is since industrial analysts are following it, it gets an industrial analyst multiple. But if you look at companies with very similar models, the model that Ashley actually had is very similar to Amazon and the fact that what they do is they establish local areas where they basically become dominant. And then what they'll do is through that distribution channel, they'll provide other products to lease and service. So they start out with just rental equipment, scissors, lift and such. And then right now they have cleaning equipment, other things that they're planning on top. So it's almost like an Amazon model on a local basis. 
And so that's clearly different than most of your industrial companies, which are mainly manufacturing businesses. So that's an example, sort of a compound mispricing. The other effect we try to look for or take advantage of in the portfolio is where it characterizes sort of private and leverage buyouts. So it's situations where companies will take on a good amount of debt, but they have a really steady cash flow. And the trend that that can really take advantage of is as long-term interest rates continue to go down, if you can find a very steady business, for example, if you look at like cable companies, very steady cash flows, they can be levered up by a significant amount, primarily due to uh, you know their stable cash flows, but you can take advantage of the spreads. It's almost like you're almost taking out like a bank. You're saying, okay, we can get X amount of investment on the cable business, but you can borrow at this really low rate and therefore get an arbitrage there. Another aspect of that type of a situation is buybacks. Because again, sort of the buybacks are the same sort of thing. If the stock is cheap, as long as the underlying business continues to grow, even at a really low rate, you can create a lot of value. For- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That. So, Keith, you've just brought up a couple of concepts there that um, a lot of listeners may have never heard about, and one is being a leveraged buyout. I'm not going to talk about the options because that's that's another walk in the woods. But um, if you could just talk about leveraged buyouts and buybacks. So a leveraged buyout is, well, actually, I'll hand it over to you. Tell us what a leveraged buyout is, and then if we can also speak about buybacks. Okay, sure. So a leveraged buyout is a situation where a company that basically can generate consistent cash flows, you see this common in sort of subscription type businesses like cable businesses, telecoms, another huge example of this where you're paying a monthly fee for a service and the customer turnover is relatively low. So you have a lot of lock-in for the customers. In other words, the customers, they don't switch that often. So you have high customer retention, So you have this huge amount of cash flow that just continues to be generated by the business. And in a leveraged buyout situation, you'll say, okay, the company may be modestly leveraged. It doesn't have a whole lot of debt. And what the leveraged buyout allows you to do is it allows you to increase debt to a certain level. Now, the key thing behind this is you don't want the leverage to get too high where the company can fail. So there's sort of a point, depending upon the volatility of the business, that makes sense for this. And there's guys out there that have done a really good job at this, and they basically made their whole business on. So this guy in the cable business named John Malone, he's a master at this. He's basically found the point at which cable businesses can be levered without becoming too levered. I mean, as an example of one of the investments I invested early on in my career is I invested in a cable business that had gotten too over levered and the company went bankrupt and I lost money in that transaction. I bought some money when it restructured and had an an appropriate amount of leverage. It did well. But that's an example of sort of the dangers of leverage buyouts is that it can be a good thing, but you need to be cognizant of where the edge is in basically taking advantage or basically learning from people that have been in the business like Malone, who's basically done this for 30, 40 years. You can get an idea of, okay, this business is has a this, this amount of leverage and, and it makes sense. So that's an example of a leverage buyout. The other is sort of stock buybacks. Now, these are situations where 
companies, if they see their stock is undervalued, can buy it back. However, what most companies really should do is they should look at and see what their opportunity set is. If they can invest in their business and continue to make investments and get good returns on those investments, that's what they typically would do first. But some businesses are in more mature markets where what happens is, is they basically, there's no more investments they can invest in to make a decent return. So they decide, okay, there's two things you can do if that happens. You can say, okay, I'm either going to return it as a dividend or I'm going to buy back my stock. Now, one is much more tax efficient than the other. If you distribute it as a dividend, then what happens is all the shareholders have to pay a tax. They're actually paying two taxes because once you generated the income, you've paid a tax as a corporation. And then when you distribute it to them, they pay a tax. So it's taxed twice. Now, if you do a share buyback, that's only taxed once because, in essence, it's taxed when the company makes it. But then they go out into the market and buy the shares. And what that does is if the value of the firm stays the same and there's fewer shares outstanding, the price per share goes up. And that's how the trading value works. It's an efficient way, given the current tax code, to basically return value to shareholders for a company that has excess cash. So I think those are two specific things I think that we try to look for in the fund in terms of basically being able to identify those situations. But a lot of it goes back to sort of overall capital allocation of the company. And this is just part of the overall strategy. But you want to basically see companies when they do this. An example of a thing that can subtract value from a company. So, okay, they can invest in their business. They can do a dividend. They can do a buyback. Now, if there's a third thing they can do, they can do M&A. They can go out and buy another company. Now, if they're buying it within their business and they understand it, and you can get a lot of synergies with that as the companies get bolder, that could be a good thing. Or you, you have people that just buy things just to make the company bigger, and those destroy a lot of value. There's t- lots of those acquisitions. So the real question becomes is, okay, it's part of the capital allocation decision. And when you look at companies, one thing you can see of companies that have done well over time is you can sort of judge, okay, how have they really done this over time? How has the management team allocated capital that they've been given? Each company is different. Each company, depending upon where they are in their growth trajectory, is different. And there's a lot of specifics here where you can really see a differentiation of companies that really do the right thing, capital allocate correctly, versus the ones that don't. And the ones that don't, you have a tendency to just stay away from. And that's a really important way of judging the quality of management, isn't it? Because they've got to deal with capital. They've got to deal with where the money that they're holding can be deployed in the best possible way for stockholders' interests. And um, some do it really well and some do it really poorly. Well, yeah. And there's a whole another aspect of stewardship, right? I mean, because you've got the situation, and again, this sort of goes back to sort of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer approach to things too, is he looked at things, basically, they didn't belong to him. He was a steward of whatever he did. And that's the kind of management team you want, because management is the steward of the shareholders' money that they give to them. And you can clearly see it in a lot of different ways. And so if the management is doing the right things from a capital allocation perspective, you'll see it as you just go through different things. One thing we like to look at a lot is sort of the proxy statement. If you look at the proxy statement, one thing that I try to look at, I don't see it much in American companies, I've seen it in some Canadian companies, is take a look at the relative amount that people on the management team are getting paid. Does the CEO pay them 10 times bigger than the, the next guy down? To me, that implicitly says the CEO thinks he's better than everyone else, right? So if you find companies that have 
different arrangements along those things. They can be very fruitful investments because it's getting into the psychology of the management. Because what you're really trying to do is you're trying to say, okay, what's the culture of this business like? And you can see examples of the culture in, for example, the proxy statements and the other things that the managements have to basically publish to sort of see what's going on. So you're basically putting a puzzle together to say, okay, would these guys be good stewards of my money? Because basically the CEO and the management team is given stewardship over this money. How are they going to spend it? Are they going to spend it in a good way or bad way, or are they going to spend it on themselves? Another guest I had on the podcast He's an analyst, and when he talks to management, he's got a list of questions that he goes through, but he, then he throws in little curly ones that um, they're not expecting and asks, what kind of car do you drive? Yeah. Well, another thing you could do is you can go see at the headquarters, do they have a specialized spot just for management, or do they say, okay, management has to park where everyone else does? And it goes even to the board of directors. Who are the board of directors and how are they set up? Are they set up as yes men? Now, a guy named Mark Leonard who runs Constellation Software probably has one of the best um, examples of ways of who he wants on his board of directors. There's two things he looks for. He looks for, does the person going to put a lot of their own money in this? And they look at this as sort of a learning experience. So basically, is it going to affect them and what they're really doing? Do they have really a passion, interest in what's going on in this? And those are very smart things to look for in directors where you don't want a director who's basically that's their whole life is just collecting director's fees. You want people that have skin in the game and really have a be part of this. And those are some of the clues of the types of things you look for. I was watching a, a recent interview with a CEO and now of one of the companies that we own. And it's a very interesting business and in that what he really does, which is unusual, this is sort of a Latin American cable telco type company. But what he's done is he actually has incentivize all of the people that are of the country levels basically with stock. And that's a very unusual thing in Latin America. And these people really are motivated. They want to know what's going on. They actually have gotten involved in the capital allocation decisions. Recently, they've decided to really accelerate this broadband rollout in Latin America. But what's happened is it's hurt near-term profitability. So the stock price has gone down. And the guy that's running the business used to work for John Malone and one of the Liberty Cable companies. So he sort of has that model in mind, but he's sort of set up a whole system. And a lot of it is a system and incentives. And when you talk with really good managers, they really know how to motivate people and organizations. You really see the focus is on incentives because incentives drive behavior. But you got to be careful because you also want to make sure the incentives don't end up having a negative aspect. And so they have to be well-designed and thought out and you need to be able to be changed them if things don't work out well. So that's that's an important aspect, I think, that we need to take a look at too. And a lot of that has to do with sort of looking at the proxy statement and other parts of the business, other documents that are associated with the business that are outside of just the general financials of the company. And when I started out, like I probably most investors do. When they start out, they just look at the numbers. They try and find cheap companies and such like that. But as you try to delve and really understand what these businesses are, you really need to look for clues of other qualitative aspects of the business that are really going to drive and motivate people. Because in the end, all these businesses are people, right? It's all driven by people. And basically, you need to figure out, okay, psychologically, what's the best way to motivate these people to go towards this goal that basically, you know, you're trying to provide value to the customer in the end and value to your employees. Okay, so moving on from German theologians to engineering, you've got a background as an engineer in the US Air Force. Um, So 
obviously engineers are very interested in managing risk. I mean, you don't want that plane falling out of the sky. How's your risk management been informed with your experience as an engineer in the Air Force? I think the real aspect from the engineering perspective is just the approach. I mean, engineering, you're taught a lot about margin of safety. Um, the other thing that I did when I was in the Air Force is I was working on a satellite that was designed to live through a nuclear war. And one of the departments that I worked in was sort of survivability, which in essence was the ability of basically the system to survive that. So you design a lot of margin in there. So basically what you're trying to do in terms of looking for investments, you're trying to look for investments that have a margin of safety. If things don't turn out the way you expect, you're not going to lose a lot of money. But if things do turn out the way you expect, you can get some really nice upside. And I think expanding out into looking at more growth opportunities and thinking about the scenarios of the upside has really sort of expanded beyond. Because when you look at companies in general, if you look at where the growth and value has happened in businesses, if you look, let's say, over four or five years, a lot of it can be re-rating of multiples. But if you look at 10, 20, 30 years, most of the growth is growth in the underlying value of the businesses. Multiples can re-rate. That's a one-time event. But if you look at the businesses that have just gone up and up and up over time, it's because they've been able to find a growth engine that's been able to be around for 20, 30 or more years. And where the big money can be made is where the market doesn't recognize that, where you can find a company that's growing, let's say, revenues at 20% a year, bottom line, 20% plus 20 to 30% per year, but you're only seeing high single digits or low double digit multiples. And as long as you can feel comfortable with the growth profile that's going on there, it's a really interesting opportunity because the market a lot of times will just take a look at, okay, well, it's in a cyclical business and therefore here's sort of the maximum price to earnings ratio that anybody should pay for it. Well, that may be true, but there's an implicit assumption there that the business isn't going to grow or, the, or there's going to be small amounts of growth. If, if the business can generate a lot of growth, then that rule of thumb basically doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that's where I think I'm finding a lot of opportunities now is basically in situations where you've got internal generation of growth that's much higher than, let's say, what the overall market or other people in the business are. I mean, you can find those situations, and you need to make sure they're going to be sustainable over a long periods of time. I think you can find some really interesting situations. And that's so, like, for example, one of the one companies we found recently has been in sort of the, um, the auto dealership space. There's a company um, called Asbury Automotive that, in essence, right now, revenue is growing 20% per year. They have, a, I think, an attainable way of doing that. Probably the bottom line will grow higher than that. But again, the company's selling like in a high single-digit multiple. Now, clearly, if they get anywhere close to that kind of growth, the company's going to go up tremendously. But I think the other side of the story on that one is, okay, it's in the auto dealership business. People think the auto dealership business it's somewhat capped and you've got online competitors that are basically you know competing against them that may reduce the amount of a potential you know upside they've got but what we found in a situation like asbury is they've actually been able to incorporate online into their business model so they can take advantage of that growth too so there's details of, of these types of things that you can find out in the market which makes for some very interesting situations you refer to a high single digit multiple and pe in that answer. Can you just explain what's going on there a little bit? Because this is really a traditional way of valuing companies, the PE ratio, which is also known as that valuation multiple. 
just talk to us a little bit about that and just explain for beginners what's going on there. Sure. So a traditional way to sort of value a business is just take a look at the price divided by the earnings. What really drives the value of a business is the growth that's associated with the business. And Benjamin Graham, who's like one of the the early founders of security analysis, has done a lot of early studies and wrote a lot about valuation of companies early on, has come up with a relatively straightforward formula that he's used by taking a look at long periods of data of, okay, what's a reasonable price to pay for a business? His formula is really eight and a half plus two G, where G is the growth rate. So the sustainable cash flow growth rate over the next seven years. So from that formula alone, you can sort of figure out the math. Okay, a zero growth company should probably sell for eight and a half times. A negative growth company should sell below that. So if you see a business out there that's selling for a five PE, what the market is really saying is they expect negative growth. Now, if they expect negative growth, it's not cheap. Now, where you can get a cheap situation is where, let's say, you get a company, we talked about the one, let's say, like Asbury, 20% growth, okay? Let's be conservative. Let's say 15% growth over the next seven years. Well, 15 times two is 30. The normal multiple should be 38.5, call it like 39 or 40, okay? If it's selling at you know a high single-digit multiple, that's a huge difference. And those are the kinds of things that we try and take a look at in just a real simple way for people to really sort of quantify, okay... There's a PE ratio out there, but it really needs to be tied to the growth of the underlying business and the cash flows going forward. And that's a, that's the simplest way I found. And Graham's done a great job of basically taking very complex formulas and making them simple. So when you're looking for opportunities for investment, you're not constrained by geographical boundaries. You're not just looking at the US stock market, are you? No, no. I mean, we we look around the world and one of our constraints is we say, okay, if you look at the history of markets, the first stock market, per se, where you had shareholders who were strangers who didn't know each other, and they agreed to pool their capital and put it into investment, was the Dutch East India Company. So it started out in the Netherlands. So the Dutch East India Company, and there's a number of companies that were developed after that. After that, what happened was over time is that the Dutch became very, very wealthy as a result of that. And then as history sort of played out, the English eventually made the Dutch king their king. And so all of that finance knowledge went to the United Kingdom. And so the United Kingdom started using that same idea of starting companies, people developing companies. What happened early on, though, was there was a huge speculative bubble. And what happened as a result of that was they basically said, you can't start new companies. So they would, for almost 100, 120, 30 years in the UK, you couldn't start new companies. However, there was a bunch of immigrants from the UK who was in the United States who basically said, okay, well, we're not going to have that restriction. So they started a company. And it's that evolution of, okay, we're going from a situation where historically business was done by families. You did it with people you trusted around the world. Now, this new system, which is the disruptive system of the Anglo-Dutch system, basically put everything on its head. It said that strangers can basically interact with each other with a given set of rules and feel that they can trust this situation and no one's going to steal their money. And so what you've got now is that system basically being adopted around the world. So it started out with the English colonies 
And then now it's being spread out to other places, but it's displacing a more older system, which is basically a relationship-based system. And so where we look to invest are in countries that have that type of a system. So we understand that system. Example of a country that's different that doesn't have that system would be right now a country, let's say like China, where a lot of it is based on state with relationships you know, the people you know. And as an outsider, you're at a huge disadvantage of that. And it's not just places like China that have autocracies. It's even places like India, where in essence, it's, you know, again, it's sort of relationship-based. So in essence, our scope of where we look at where we're going to invest are places like that. So those would be places like, you know, primarily that's called all the English colonies. So that would be like the U.S., U.K., Australia, South Africa, and then other places that are adopting those types of principles, South Korea being one. The Philippines is another one. It was a U.S. possession. So they, they have these ways of thinking about doing things. I mean, Korea is a very interesting situation because I think they're in a dynamic where they've got a choice. They've traditionally been dominated by China and Japan. And now after World War II, since we were there for a long time, they've got a choice of going to a third person, the United States. And so I think they've adopted a lot of the United States approach to things. And you just look at the way that they've done stuff in terms of they've transitioned from these family-owned companies. Now a lot of them are publicly traded. The incentives they've set up for basically the companies to do the right thing. So tell us a bit more about the Bonhoeffer Fund and how people can find you and um, the work that you're trying to achieve. Sure. So we have a website, bonhoeffercapital.com, that if you go there, you can find information about the fund. I mean, we're a hedge fund, so there's the SEC regulations and such like that. You have to be accredited investor to invest. But if you send us an email, we can get you on the mailing list for reports and such like that. And I also am active on Twitter under Bonhoeffer underscore KDS. I found Twitter to be an awesome forum to get to know other investors. It's really a great forum. It really adds, I think, a lot of value of being able to find and source people. And I found people, even though in, I've heard in some parts of Twitter, it can be pretty nasty. Um, for the most part, the people that I've met on what they call FinTwit, which is primarily the financial part of Twitter, have been very, very, very nice and very gracious and willing to share. And I think what you would want a community to be like is sort of what's happened there, which I think is really enjoyable. So, I, I mean, I think those are the main things. And if you want, again, just feel free to send me an email if you got any questions. Case Smith at BonhoefferCapital.com or visit our site or, you know, um, if you want, you can, I'm going to add Bonhoeffer KDS from Twitter. I think those are probably the best places to, to get a hold of, of me and or just inquiries about the fund. And I'll second that about uh, FinTwit and Twitter. It's a great place. And it's also highly amusing, some of the accounts to, to follow as well. <laughs> you do know uh, Dr. Parikh Patel? Do you ever follow him? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's pretty funny. There's some interesting fun parodies on there. Yeah. <laughs> some of these parody fin Twitter accounts are fantastic. So, yes, I'll second that for, like you say, the graciousness and the sense of humour. It's, it's not as toxic as many other places on Twitter can be. But, Keith, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And we're going to have another conversation soon sometime about the whole history of capitalism because <laughs> that's another area that I'd, I wanted to cover. And I know you're very interested in that as well. Oh, yeah, no, I think I, I think it's a very important, very important story to be told and for people to sort of understand what the origins of where they are today is. I mean, I know in the United States, people 
take for granted a lot of stuff that happens. And if you really understand the history behind it, I think it gives you a little bit more of appreciation of, of why things are the way they are and just gives you more understanding of what's happening. So yeah, no, I really appreciate it, Phil. It's been real fun talking with you. Thanks very much, Keith. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 